You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, if you have a, a Bible with you this morning, if you would, turn there with me. Um, again, we're going to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a, a hard copy of the text under a seat around you if you'd like to be um, using a, a hard copy of the Bible. Again, when you're there at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. It's a good day to be washed in the blood. Amen. So as, uh, oh, my name is Eric, by the way. Thank you for everyone joining online as well. Uh, As Lauren said, we have been in a series uh, for January called A Providential People, where we have been discussing who God has called us to be as uh, a local church, as the church globally. Uh, and we've been focusing on this particular text in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Today we're going to take a turn. Uh, the past two weeks we've been talking about what it means to be the salt of the earth uh, and the danger therein to lose your saltiness. And now we'll be discussing what it means to be the light of the world. And I'm very excited about this text. It's a great text. And so uh, we've been asking two questions. So there's two analogies here that Jesus brings. And it's the salt of the earth and light of the world. And we've been asking two major questions about each uh, analogy. And that's this. Uh, what is it or what does it mean? And then how do we function in it? And so that's what I want to do today is I want to answer the question, what does it mean to be the light of the world? And then as light of the, the lights of the world, how do we function in that and, and, and do that well? Um, So that's what we'll be discussing. Um, Yeah, so let's go ahead and pray together, uh, and we'll get started. So you guys can join with me in prayer. Father, we love you so much, and we love your word. God, your word is very precious to us. We thank you that when we are weak, your word is powerful. When we are in chaos, your word is peace. When we are in need, God, your word satisfies all the time, and we thank you for that powerful gift you've given us, Lord. We pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand with our minds and our hearts what it is you are saying to us. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you give us uh, an amazing attention span uh, and just, just the love for your word, God, that it carries. I pray, God, you teach us what it means to be lights in this world. And God, you would help us to faithfully, joyfully, and truthfully walk as lights in the world. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so one thing I want to talk about as we jump into the text. So uh, Matthew 5, so the context is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is sitting down on top of this mountaintop, and and he is uh, teaching his disciples. So he's talking to his 12 disciples, and around him is is a pretty big crowd. This crowd kind of comes and goes. Jesus will say something, and they get offended, and they walk away, and a new crowd comes. But he's talking to his disciples, and, and 
I pray that this is an encouragement for us this morning because it's easy to read a text like, you are the light of the world, knowing that he's talking to the gentlemen that have become these great apostles, right? Uh, and it's easy to feel like this text may not apply to you, right? Uh, and so what I mean by that is that this text is, is for us. It's for anyone who claims the name of Christ, anyone who calls himself Christian, who says, yes, I believe in Jesus. This text is for us. This text is not something that's given that's impossible, but it's given to us. It is ours. We are, if you are a Christian, you are lights of the world. And so maybe you could word it a different way. What I mean is that this text in Matthew 5.14, where Jesus says, you are lights of the world, this is a declarative statement, not an imperative. And so what Jesus is saying here is he, he is declaring your identity. He is not giving you a task. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. I don't care how dim you feel like you are. I know some of us might be LEDs. Some of us might be like a traditional Edison, okay? But either way, uh, Edison's can be more beautiful, right? But either way, you are the light of the world. There's no escaping this. It's not, there's no take-backsies here in the kingdom, right? It's, it's, this is what you are. This is your identity in Christ. No matter how bad you feel like you're failing, no matter how bad you feel like you are faintly clinging to Christ, um, you are the light of the world. This is your identity, This is what you've been given in Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean to be the light of the world? We have to understand this is an identity issue. This isn't just a command. It's not like if you go out here uh, and you do something wicked that you now are not the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And we'll discuss that further even next week and what that means. But I'll say this to maybe kind of sum it up. Our being the lights of the world is not based on what we know. It's based on who we know. Okay, It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ has done for us. And this is a key factor as you walk into this uh, audacious statement the Lord's going to make about you being the light of the world. Um, It's important to remember. And so I think this implies then that Jesus is the true light, right? We get this from all over the Bible. If you heard that light of the word term, you probably went immediately to other portions of Scripture. Like, for example, in John 8, 12, it says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, right? So what makes us the light of the world is not our good deeds. It's not our ability to be better than others. It is simply and surely that Jesus is the light of the world, and that light is ours, right? In Christ Jesus, therefore, you are now the light of the world. It's like the greater and lesser light concept, right? You take the sun and the moon. The sun is the source of light uh, for earth, right? But the moon reflects that light. Like the moon doesn't have any light within itself. It's just this white, glorious rock sitting there that could hit us at any time and ruin our lives. Uh, And that is shining the light of the sun, right? In the same way, we are reflections of Jesus Christ as he lives in us and rescues us from our darkness, amen? So um, that's what it means to be the light of the world. So we are, uh, we are bright. We are a light because we know the light of the world. Uh, Jesus is the true light who has come into the world. And so now we get to ask the question, what does light do? And I think that's good to kind of think about. And simply put, there's a lot of things you could say. There's a lot of science behind light that's like really cool. But I'm just going to simply say, I think what light does is light exposes darkness, right? You walk into a room that's totally dark. You flip the switch, the light comes on, it exposes everything in that room, right? That's what light does. And in the same way, as the lights of the world, uh, knowing the true light of the world, we expose darkness is what I'm trying to get here. So the need for light implies that there is darkness, right? You don't come into a bright room and turn the light on, but 
the, the light implies darkness. And so uh, the world is dark. That's another thing we got to get as we kind of define what it means to be light of the world. It's that the world is in darkness. Now, I have a lot of texts I would love to go through for this. I wish we had much more time, but I'm going to focus on two. So the notion that the world is dark and needs light, uh, the first text we find in John 3, uh, starting in verse 19. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen, but check this out. This is what he says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest in his work, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this is a good example. It says that the world loves darkness. How can you tell the world loves darkness? Well, because what the world does, right? It says that the world loves darkness and therefore the outcome is these wicked deeds of darkness. And I'm sure it hasn't, unless you've been sleeping for the past year, right? I think you could see that uh, the world's dark, right? I mean, there's lots of things going on. It's just it's so dark. I'm sure you could see in your own heart. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this. I, I think the main reason we don't read the Word of God is not because we're lazy or incompetent. It's because we don't want to be exposed, right? This is what the Word of God does. It exposes you. When you come into the Word of God, you now have to deal with your emptiness, right? You now have to deal with the way you fall short. But we need to be a people who love that, all right, who walk into that and say, I don't care how shameful it is to be exposed for who I am. I want more light. I don't want more darkness. Well, the Word of God is so precious to us. But the world isn't dark. You can see by the deeds, right? The world loves the dark, hates the light, hates to be exposed, doesn't want anything to do with it, right? And then another text that I think speaks to maybe one more aspect of this. So first you got, we see the darkness in the deeds of the world because of the heart that loves darkness. The second thing is in Romans 8, or sorry, Romans 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's an important line. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible Attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the second way we see that the world is in absolute, utter darkness is by our amazing ability to suppress the truth, to exchange the glory of God for images representing man and beast, right? It's this, this idea that our foolish hearts become darkened because we suppress the truth about who God is, right? And, and so you got this, these deeds and knowledge or actions and language. This is the way we see the darkened world. And so to sum it all up, we live in a dark world that needs to be exposed to the true light. And so not only do we expose darkness, but maybe we could say it another way, we also lead people to true light. This is an important thing. We don't just expose it and say, ha-ha, you've been caught, right? It's not, it's not all we're doing. It's, it's, there's a lot of Christians like this, right? It's like you, you're going to get one half. It's like you stop right there. We love just exposing how bad everyone is, and then we just wipe our hands away and walk away, right? God hates sinners. You're done for, right? And that's kind of it. But there's a second half, right, which is not only does God hate sinners, but by his grace and mercy, he rescues them 
and loves them through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have the gospel that we proclaim, that we talk about, that we rejoice in, and this matters so much. And so not only do we expose darkness, but we, we draw with all of our might, all of our energy that God works within us, people into the light. And it's important. Um, so in summary, what does it mean to be the light of the world? It means that we are God's people who shine the light of Christ into a dark world, right? It's this kind of, this First uh, Peter 2, right, where he talks about we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and therefore we proclaim his excellencies, right? That's what's going on here. Um, but I do want to give us a, a maybe, a, I don't know if it's a caution is the right word, but I just want to make a remark about this, that uh, darkness does not like to be exposed. I think it's important as Christians because uh, if, if you've ever noticed, like any time you've tried to, be lights in the world, right? Or are you trying to kind of walk in that identity and you're exposing darkness that like people don't like that. Like we don't like it in ourselves and the world as a whole does not like being exposed for the darkness that it is, right? I was reminded as I was prepping for this uh, of a story. So we rented a house before the house that we're currently in that we bought. We rented a house and you know, when you first go in a house and you're like touring it and you might uh, either buy it or rent it, like it's hard to see bad things about it, right? It's just kind of like, it's so amazing, right? You love the house, you love how they did this, it's so nice, everything looks good. You don't think about half the things you might run into in there, right? And so we, we rented out this house for a year, and you know, we kind of started to notice little things like, ah, uh, it's going to cost money to fix, uh, you know. And obviously when you're renting, it's a better situation because anything major is the landlord's responsibility. But I remember one night I couldn't sleep. It's like 1 in the morning. I get up, and I walk into the kitchen, and I flip the light switch on, and... <laughs> There was this, it was a mouse, okay? It wasn't a rat, but it was a mouse. And I'm telling you, it's one of the biggest mice I've ever seen in my life. Uh, maybe, there's, maybe that's common. I don't know. I don't see mice often, but I saw it. And I remember this moment where I walk out, flip the light on, and I look over. And it's like we made eye contact. Like he was right there in the kitchen, and he just looked at me, right? And it was just like, like time stood still for a second, you know? It's like we were just speaking to each other without speaking kind of thing. And all of a sudden he like darts off and he like got, somehow there was like this hole like up under the cabinet that he was able to get in. And I never know for sure if we end up killing the thing in exact justice. But the point was this, that had I just lived in this house and not got up at one in the morning and then spent the rest of the night trying to figure out how to kill this thing, I would have never known that this dirty nutra rat was just living in my house, right? I mean, he could have got into my kid's bedroom. I mean, there's so much stuff that could have happened, right? You just don't like mice in your house. Uh, and I would have never known that, right? But when the light was flipped on, it was exposed that there were some nasty things going on, okay? And in the same way, whether it be the, the house uh, of your heart or the world, right? Uh, it's an offensive thing. It's a disgusting thing. It's an uncomfortable thing. It's a worrisome thing. But it is a good thing, right, for, for darkness to be exposed by light. And so that's what God has called you and I to do is to expose darkness in the world, and we don't expose that by our own light. Once again, right, we expose that by the light of Christ in us. And this is an amazing opportunity and thing that we've been called to do as believers. So um, that's kind of the, what it is, okay? That's how I would define being lights of the world. Now we've got to talk about uh, how do we function as lights of the world, or, or maybe a better way would be uh, how do we let our light so shine before men, as Jesus says. And I get that from verse 16 where he says, uh, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So there's three major things I want to talk about, um, and hopefully this will kind of be a good summary of what we're going. So uh, number one is we expose uh, the works of darkness by living lives of light that shine the glory of God. So that's the first thing. So we expose the works of darkness by living lives 
of light that shine the glory of God. I'm sorry that first one was so long. I just wanted to fit all those aspects in it. That's the only way I could do it, okay? Um, so Matthew 5, 16, one more time. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So um, not only must we love the light, but we must obey the light, okay? This is an important aspect of the Christian life. Our obedience, okay, as disciples of Jesus is a way in which we shine the glory of God to others. Now, if you were thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, you probably remember that in the next chapter in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to explicitly tell us, don't do your works before people just to be seen by them, okay? He's going to warn us through three different scenarios that if you try to do things so that other people will see you doing them and see how righteous you are, that you're in a very bad spot, okay? Jesus says, you can't do that. Like, that, that's not the point. The point is what's done in secret. Like, what, what's the heart, right? And so you might be saying, wait a second, this seems contradictory, right? Jesus says, we're supposed to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, right? All of our work should be seen. We should be posting on Facebook every time we're doing something. But the point is motivation. That's what Jesus is getting at. So if you notice, he says that they would see your good deeds and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is not saying you can never do things in front of people. But he's saying that shouldn't be your concern is whether people are watching you or not, whether people think you're righteous or not, right? Our concern is to be about the glory of God and in the path of obedience as we live lives that reflect the light of Jesus Christ. They will give glory to God and they will be lights in the world and expose darkness. So we are commanded here to let our lives shine to the world so they may give glory to God. Now, I want to just ask a few things about your life. I mean, there's a lot of things specifically that you might have to walk out with the darkness of your own heart and where your tendencies are to sin and where your tendencies are to not maybe fulfill some of these things. But at the end of the day, I want to ask us a few questions because I think that at the end of the day, as lovers of the true light, our lives are going to be markedly different than someone who doesn't know and have Jesus. They should be, right? This is a common thing. This is what Jesus is getting at is that your life is going to be different. When he goes through like all the Beatitudes, like, you know, the poor in spirit and all these things, he's saying these are things that we should embody, okay? So a few questions I want to ask. One is, do we rely on the same things that the world relies on? Are we entertained by the same things that the world is entertained by? Do we find comfort in the same things the world finds comfort in? Are we worried about the same things the world is worried about and... um, I could go on and on and maybe ask some more questions. But my point is this, like, does your life, and I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty to where you feel like I'm just never going to be amount up, but if we have the basic truth that we have the Lord of light, right? We have Jesus Christ, the all-satisfying, all-powerful, amazing Savior who's rescued us out of darkness when we didn't deserve it and brought us into his marvelous light. Having that as followers of the light, There should be a difference about us. I'm not saying you're not going to look like your neighbors, right? Like, obviously you're going to, okay? Like, this sermon series is not going to crescendo with me inviting you out to a combine in El Paso. We're all going to live out there together and wear funny hats. Like, that's not where we're going with this, okay? You're you're going to smell like your neighbor. You're going to eat like your neighbor. You're going to dress like your neighbor. But what I'm getting at is... There should be something markedly different about you. Yes, you're in the world. Yes, you experience the same things in the world, but you should be different, right? Our lives should be marked by something different. The comforts of the world should not satisfy us. 
They should not be our biggest aim. The awful entertainment that the world offers should not be something that coaxed us to rest, right? It, there, there should be something different about our lives, right? Something that, a different motivation, a different joy, a different peace in the midst of chaos. And when we do that, we so let our light shine before others. There should be something different about our lives. And uh, I got a story. We're, we're going to wait to get to that story. So that's number one, is we expose the works of darkness by living lives of light that shine the glory of God. Second thing we do and this is important, is that we expose the lies of darkness by proclaiming the light of truth. So not only do we expose the works of darkness, but we also expose the lies of darkness. Remember Romans 1, which had this epic thing about um, suppressing the truth and being in darkness, right? And I want to go to another text that really kind of explains this. It's 2 Corinthians 4, starting verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful Underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I know there's a lot of texts, but let's sum this up. What's happening is Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's like a veil that's over their face, right? And Paul is recommending here that by an open statement of the truth, right, we proclaim the gospel, okay, which is... The light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is, um, where's the line here? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love this, okay? So there is this aspect. We talked about darkness infiltrates our action and our thought, right? Our actions and our language. And so for us, as we respond at lights in the world, this should not only affect the way we live our lives, but this also should affect the way we speak, okay? Our speech. We, we are people who have a gospel that penetrates darkness. Amen. We, we've been brought from darkness into light and therefore we have a message that we are called to be heralds of, to promulgate to the ends of the world, all the corners of darkness, right? We have a message to proclaim and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. And listen, we live in a time where the world desperately wants to cover the truth, right? Have you noticed that? This has always been true. This has been true since, you know, forever, since sin entered the world. But, and not only does the world want to cover truth, but the world also wants to compel you to embrace the lie. Does that make sense? So not only is it okay for the truth to be, con- to be concealed, but also you have to be compelled to embrace the lie and to speak the lie. And for us, simply as believers, we don't have to be mean. We don't have to be aggressive, okay? But we should humbly, gracefully, and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel message. We have to be about this. Now, here's what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that you should get on Facebook after you leave here or even right now and see how many atheists you can argue with before the day is over, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Usually, that ends up being pretty fruitless. But what I am saying is that we have to be people that, despite it being maybe a little scary, despite the consequences, that we're willing to speak the truth, Right, like to speak the truth to someone in love is the most loving thing you can do for a person. 
it's not allowing them to stay in darkness and letting that be so because you don't want to offend them. Like, I can't stand when people say, oh, well, you shouldn't, like, force that upon your kids. You know, you got to let them figure things out. I'm like, no. Right? Like, no one would do that. Yes, I forced it upon my kids. They're in darkness, right? I mean, I want to force the light. Like, like we should not be ashamed of those things. And it's funny because we, we live in an age where we have the most knowledge we could ever ask for, right? I mean, we know things about the human body that's just insane, okay? We were taking like a, just a common biology class with ATP and all these things going on. It's like, how in the world do we know these things, right? We live in a day where psychology has so bloomed that we know so much things about the mind. And you know what the funniest thing is? That the world has no idea why we can't get it together. I mean, and think, think about like World War II, right? It was like this moment, we see some evil, genocide. We're going to come together, this League of Nations, and everything's going to be fine because we are enlightened and we're just going to work all things out. And it failed miserably. And it fails over and over and over and over again. Even the American experiment that was just so glorious and awesome for what it is, is going to fail, right? I, I mean, there is a darkness that we just don't have an answer for. But in the precious word of God, we have an answer for it. So we should be a people that are not only committed to speaking the truth, but we should be devoted to the truth. The word of God should be precious to us. It informs us of so many things going on in our own hearts, so many things going on in the world. So we should proclaim. Now, I'm all about, like, I I believe that, you know, because a lot of people will say, like, okay, well, if you don't live a life that's, that's worthy of the gospel, and then you go out and you try to proclaim a gospel that obviously just doesn't compute with your life, right? Like, I do think that's harmful. I think that's not good. But I don't think us going out and just living a godly life is enough. I do think these go hand in hand. I think that's why Paul says, well, how are people going to know if we don't tell them, right? I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's just common sense. How is someone going to know? They might say, hey, something's different. But how are they going to know what it is unless you tell them, unless you speak about it? Oh, we gotta, we got to have some tough skin. Remember that Jesus, when he promised the world was going to hate you, he gave a caveat. You know what that caveat was? He's like, look, they're going to hate you. All right, it's going to be pretty bad. But remember that they're not really hating you. They're hating me. It's not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of the light because they love darkness, right? This is important for us to remember that the world is going to hate us for sure. It doesn't mean every time you speak the gospel, someone's going to hate you. I mean, a lot of people are going to receive the gospel and believe, and that's why we need to talk about it, all right? That should encourage us. But when you are hated, when you are canceled, when you are thought ill of, when you are considered a bigot, this is nothing new. This has always happened to Christians. It's always happened to Christians. Why? Because people can't stand the light. They hate it because they don't want their darkness to be exposed. But when you gracefully, humbly, joyfully, consistently expose darkness, we are lights in the world. And it is a glorious thing. And God is using it. He's using us. And so we should devote ourselves to reading the truth, proclaiming the truth, and clinging to the truth because it will set us free. In that same text in John 8 where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he goes on to tell the Pharisees who reject him that only the truth can set them free. Right? That's how we bring light. My third point is this. Um, We expose the love of darkness by loving the light of the world. Okay, this is really the foundation of the other two things. We talked about living a life that's worthy of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. At the end of the day, it boils down to loving darkness versus loving light. And so we expose the love of darkness by loving the light of the world. 
Uh, here's what John, just to repeat it one more time. John 3 says, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, and I would say, and loves the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the light is Jesus, and it is in loving Jesus that we find the power, the audacity, the ability to both live a godly life in Christ Jesus and to proclaim the truth about the light. It's in loving the light. If you don't love the light, you can't do the other things well. You got to start here, right? You got to start with, I just love the light. I mean, this begs the question, do we know him? What separates two people that proclaim to love Jesus but have very different lifestyles. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you you like to spend time with God? I mean, it sounds like such a basic and awkward question to ask somebody, but do you find time alone with God in his word and prayer? Do you love him? Do you want to spend time with him? Do you know him? Do you long to know him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? We should want to know him. As we love the light, our lives, our conversation, our presence are markedly different than the world's. What peace and hope we have in Jesus, this is displayed in marvelous ways, especially in our darkest times. I love this truth. Like there is nothing more glorious than a suffering Christian who for some reason in the midst of chaos has peace, who for some reason in the midst of doubt has hope, who for some reason in the midst of failure has trust and repentance, right? It's an amazing thing. I'm reminded of a story by John Wesley. So I don't care what you think about his theology, all right, but John Wesley had an amazing experience. He, uh, in England, back in the 1700s, he was in college with his buddy, his brother, Charles, and George Whitfield and some other people. And they were in this club, this college club, get this, called the Holy Club, all right? It was not veiled. They were the holy people, all right? And they did some funny things. They would wear clothes that were obviously torn and dirty and haggard, on purpose, all right? They're kind of like Stoics in this. They would starve themselves repeatedly because they wanted to suffer like Jesus suffered. Every ounce of money they got, they gave away immediately to the poor. They were not going to have any of it. Like they prided themselves on being the holiest of holy people, okay? And still, despite all that holiness that was going on in John Wesley's life, he struggled so hard with doubt that he was really in Jesus Christ. And on one of his trips to America, he was coming to Georgia to preach to the, the Indians, uh, the, the Native Americans. And what he did was he was on his way, he was on a ship, and then all of a sudden their ship just got destroyed by this storm. And, like, you know, they were like people, it's so funny if you read some of the history of it, but people were later running up to him with their babies and saying, baptize my baby just in case we die. Like it was like, so he's like baptizing babies, you know, that's what the Church of England did, like just in case they died, right, and went overboard. And they had a service. And then all of a sudden the storm got really bad and in that moment, there was this group, like all the group of Englishmen that he was with were just terrified. I mean, there was cries, there was screams. It was like, we're dying, we're going overboard. If you've ever been in the ocean, this is scary stuff, okay? It's not like a cruise. This is like life or death situation. And there was this group of German Moravians that were just like having a service of their own apart from the English guys, and they were just singing. And John Wesley, like he reports that even down to the smallest child was like this weird peace. They were just singing like nothing was about to go wrong. And they were continuing their gathering that they had. And John Wesley was horrified. I mean, he was horrified at himself. 
and, and it just ate him up for years until later when he eventually would realize that he came to know Christ at a later time. He would call himself a non-believer at that point. But my point in this whole story is that there was this chaotic situation. And for John Wesley, like to see that in action, right? To see in the worst of moments, this whole like group of families just worshiping God, a peace that passes understanding, right? If you have understanding in that moment, you're going down and it's scary, right? You should be terrified. But a peace that passes understanding, it was an amazing thing. I just think, man, I look at our world right now and I think, what an opportunity for us to have peace in the midst of chaos. What an opportunity for us to love the Lord and proclaim the truth without being overly contentious on purpose because it feels good, right? <laughs> what an opportunity for us to have a brokenhearted boldness, one that longs for the salvation of others, not just to destroy the Democrats, right? Like, like longs to bring people into the light. And here's the deal. I'm not saying that the only way we can be light to the world is in a, in a moment of chaos because here, here, like the mundane tedium of our lives is a perfect way to display the glorious light of Jesus Christ, right? Like, like you, in a moment like this where your ship is crashing and you're fine and in a moment where you don't lose your cool in the midst of a long grocery line, like those are equally valuable in a sense to proclaiming the light of Christ. Like living a quiet and godly life in Christ Jesus is an amazing way to be lights in the world. There's still something markedly different about your hope and joy and peace in those moments. But I do think that in the mundane is a perfect training ground for in a moment of chaos, right? Like if right now we're just going to hit the eject button and just kind of live in our comfort and just not worry about anything, and then when a moment comes, we're going to be like, it's going to be chaos for our own soul, right? Like John Wesley's was. But it is as we daily seek to be lights in the world that God is preparing us. And if a moment comes where we are in serious danger and need serious uh, peace, right? We're already there, right? Because we're walking in the peace of the Lord. We're walking as lights in the world. Now, in closing, here's two things. One, I would sum it up like this. If you were to ask me how in the world are, can we function as lights in the world? I don't want to say be lights of the world as if like if you're doing it, you're, you're cool. If you're not doing it, you're not that. Because remember, we talked about your identity. But how do we function properly as lights of the world? Here's my summary. I would say that we love the light, we live for the light, and we talk about the light, okay? Love the light, you live for the light, you talk about the light. This is how we do this. And my desire as we close is I want to help us feel a sense of earnestness about doing this, but I do not want to overemphasize things in such a way that, that makes you feel overwhelmed and defeated before you start. This is important. It's easy to do that. When you're at a pulpit and you've got a microphone, it's easy to bash people, right? You just say, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, and you know what? Jesus said count the cost, so if you're not going to do it, just get out of here right now, right? It's, it's easy to do those kind of things, but I, I hope we feel like we're not defeated, okay? We have the one that defeated darkness living in us. We can do this, right? I, I mean, the weakest Christian, barely hanging on to the curtails of Christ, and the one that's in Africa right now proclaiming the gospel to an unaged people group, you have the ability to live as lights. You've been given this by the power of the Spirit. What makes you powerful and bright is not you. What a glorious reality we have. It's Jesus. He is bright. He is light. He is the true light. And by the power of his Spirit, he enables us to walk day in and day out as lights of the world. And I also don't want to underemphasize things so that you leave here thinking, I don't got to change anything about my life. It's cool. I just coast with it. It's all good. The Lord's going to fulfill it. No, there should be a seriousness about our joy. It's not a flippant joy, okay? It's a serious joy. 
we're serious about what we do. So I want to leave you with um, a Jim Elliott quote as we close. Um, so if you want, you actually can stand with me. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read this and, and we'll pray together. Uh, but this is something that Jim, Jim Elliott said a lot of amazing things, but this is one thing that I think, uh, I hope gives us a little bit of earnestness and drive in light of the things we talked about. And I just want to pray together. Um, so let's, let's, let's uh, listen to this. Here, here's what it is. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those eye contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as a church, I think if we're honest, we all feel the utter hopelessness we have in fulfilling this identity and calling on our lives to be the light of the world. And God, often we don't feel like lights. We feel like we're more just battling our own darkness. And so God, I pray a few things for us. I pray that as a church, that we'd lean into one another. God, you've given us the glorious reality of being a part of the church. We are lights, not just to a dying world, but to one another. And it's in being lights to one another, God, that we are able to leave our paths of darkness and step more and more into your light. And God, praise you for that. And so I pray we lean into one another. God, I pray that we'd be willing to face the word and to love it. And despite it exposing our darkness to embrace the light in repentance and moving forward into joy. And God, as we look out at Atascacita, as we think about our mission statement, we said we're devoted to one thing. That's to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And what we mean by that, God, is we are devoted to exposing the darkness of Atascacita, Humble, Kingwood, and beyond to the ends of the earth, that people might find the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his face, the glorious truth of the gospel, and be transformed and be changed. God, would you give us as a church a broken-hearted boldness to live a godly life in you, in obedience, and to proclaim the truth about who you are. May we not shrink back in fear, but in the power of your spirit, be honest, be humble, be bold, be loving. God, this is an impossible task that's set before us. And so we throw ourselves on you and pray, God, make us bright. Make us lights in the world. Make our lives not glorify ourselves, but glorify you and be bright in that way. Make our lives markedly different, not because we're good within ourselves, but because you are amazing. You are worth every ounce of our energy, our praise. You are glorious. You are ever great and merciful and just. And God, this morning we respond in worship that you have rescued us and called us your own. And we pray, God, as a church, make us lights. We ask this in Jesus' name.